0: Here we're going to learn how to alleviate some suffering as we deal with children that are dealing with malaria and adults as well and what we can do for them. How many of you are practicing clinicians that have taken care of somebody with malaria? And how many of you have had malaria? How many of you expect to get malaria? <laughs> Sorry. And how many of you expect to take care of someone with malaria in the future? All right, so malaria is relevant, it's good we're all here, um, and we can see what God has for us this morning. Over this next hour, we will discuss some facts so we can grow a bit in knowledge to understand the parasites that cause malaria, to understand the insects that transmit malaria, and then also to understand something about who's getting malaria and who those people are. Are you hearing me okay? Are you hearing me through the microphone? I think I was supposed to push a button. Is that any different? Oh. All right. Back row. Hello. I was missing you. Uh, So we're going to learn a little bit, but hopefully we'll also get some skills, some management skills, so we actually know what to do and are able to do it to take care of people with malaria and even to prevent malaria, particularly as it relates to pregnant women, kids, and us all, travelers going to a malaria endemic area as adults. So we start with a comment about the villains. The bad guys in this story are the parasites that cause malaria. Quiz question for the morning. How many, actually of all of you who think you know something about malaria, raise one hand, please. That should be everybody. All right, this is not humble pie where you can't... uh, Three people, okay. Everybody raise a hand. (laughs) Very good. Now on that hand, or both hands if you would like, show with your fingers... How many species of Plasmodium cause malaria in humans? Keep your hands up. Oh, oh, we don't all agree. Keep your hands up. Oh, oh, keep that hand up over there. That was a good one. Okay. Oh, wow, that was a half. Okay. Um, As you look around, I saw two and a half people that said three. The half finger was going up and down there. Um, I saw about half of the rest of you said four, and about half of you said five. Somebody tell me the, who the three were. What, what are the three parasites that you know that cause malaria if you said three? Plasmodium, Plasmodium yeah. vivex. Fal- Plasmodium falciparum or falciparum. Very good. And who was the third? Okay, Plasmodium malariae or malaria. Somebody said four. What's the fourth? Okay, vivax, ovale, falciparum, malaria. All right, so we've got four. Raise your hand if you had five fingers up. Oh, come on, half of the people had five fingers. <laughs> there was some talk yesterday about trying to always be perfect and looking good to people with the right answers. All right, only how many of you said five? So one of you that said five, tell us the fifth. Oh, there is a fifth, but he doesn't remember it. Those that said five apparently know more than those that said four. The fifth is called no less for those that know less. Actually, it's called Plasmodium nulls based on the research work of a Dr. Knowles. So indeed, new information in the past decade. Indeed, there are five different Plasmodium species that cause malaria in humans. Uh, Plasmodium falciparum is the most common around the world. It's the one that's most commonly fatal, um, and it's resistant to lots of medications. Plasmodium vivax is fairly common, occurs in much of the malaria endemic parts of the world, but doesn't kill very often, and only in the last decade or so has it shown resistance to chloroquine um, through Indonesia and the Asia-Pacific area. Plasmodium ovale is not very common. It's mostly in West Africa. Plasmodium malariae is not very common, but does occur in both Asia and Africa. And Plasmodium nolzi, for all of us that now don't know less than we did before because we know more, and the Plasmodium nolzi has been described in Malaysia and Indonesia and the Philippines and the South Pacific. So we're all happy that there are five species that cause malaria in humans. Oh, some of you are thinking that's a trick question. It depends on how we count. This is an article that talks about the Plasmodium Nolsey. Plasmodium Nolsey looks like Plasmodium malariae under the microscope, but it acts like Plasmodium falciparum and can cause severe disease. So it's a bad kind of malaria. But are there just five or are there six? Those that do genetic studies have identified that Plasmodium ovale actually is a, a combination of two distinct species that occur in the same parts of West Africa, but those parasites don't interbreed. So they're genetically dissimilar separate species, but it'd be too complicated to change the name of them completely. So they're given subspecies qualifiers named after doctors Curtis and Waller. So some would claim that there are six species, but that's too complicated. So most of us will just say five, realizing that Plasmodium ovale might actually consist of two separate species. Uh, so we'll move on to another question. What is the most dangerous animal in the world? We're getting warmed up today. Keep saying things. I've heard fruit bat. I've heard mosquito. Man. That was kind of chauvinistic. Uh, uh, woman. If you say woman, you get in more chauvinistic trouble all right what 's the most dangerous animal? I heard a few options. Some people are saying fruit bat because we all care about Ebola. USA Today covered last night 's interview and comments from the Brantleys and Lance and Rick. Um, so USA Today had an article about what we were hearing here it didn 't make it into the print version of USA today, but it was in their online version, but in fact. Fruit bats do carry problems like Ebola, and there have been about 13,000 cases this year, but not many of you thought that was the most dangerous. Nobody said dogs, but dogs transmit rabies. In this country, most rabies is transmitted by foxes and bats, and there's not a lot. But around the world, dogs transmit a fair bit of rabies, and it's said there are about 55,000 cases of rabies each year. Um, That's a lot. I'm not sure that's it's really rabies cases, in which case 55,000 have died, or rabies potential, in which case they got vaccine after a bite and then didn't get sick. But rabies is still a big deal, but nobody chose that. Many of you chose mosquito as the most deadly, and of course you would choose that. We're talking about malaria. But mosquitoes cause more than just malaria. Mosquitoes account for a couple hundred thousand cases each year of yellow fever, with about 30,000 deaths. There are about 50 million cases each year of dengue, with many fewer deaths than that. Japanese encephalitis virus is common in some parts of Asia with about 75,000 cases per year. And most of us now have started to hear about chikungunya virus started being noticed in the Indian Ocean, uh, islands, and east coast of Africa about five or six years ago, spread up along and through Africa and India. Now chikungunya virus transmitted by mosquitoes has been identified in Europe with a recent report from France, and it's been identified in the Caribbean and Florida. So chikungunya is coming to join us as well. But statistically... What makes malaria, or what makes mosquitoes the most dangerous animal is malaria with about 200 million cases each year and about 1,700 deaths each day. Think of the tragedy it would be if everybody who's been at this conference in the last two days died. Well, that was morbid. Uh, but if we all died, that would be over these two days, about 1,700 a day. There are about 3,000 of us here. That would impact us, obviously, and our families and loved ones and churches and communities. That's what's going on with malaria, with about 1,700 deaths each day. So we could say that mosquitoes are the most dangerous animal. However, he wanted to blame it on man. Um, Humans do account for probably more more deaths than that. And we could say that all disease and death is really because of man's choices and because of human behaviors that could be changed. But then if we don't want to take responsibility, we'll say the devil made me do it. And it was that serpent animal's fault for introducing sin into the world. I'm not sure Adam and Eve got away with blaming the devil for everything. But mosquitoes account for a lot, and the biggest issue with mosquitoes is malaria. Um, and we care about mosquitoes, the vector. We talked about the parasites, the villain. The mosquitoes are the vector of malaria. Uh, former nerd, current philanthropist Bill Gates gave a talk a few years ago, and during the talk about malaria, he opened a jar, a glass jar with flying things in it, Anopheles mosquitoes. He opened the jar and let the mosquitoes free over the people listening to him, saying, not only poor people should experience this. So he introduced everybody listening to his talk to the risk of mosquito bites. I don't think they were carrying malaria. Um, but in fact, there were a lot of people itching and scratching and swatting and feeling very uncomfortable knowing there were anopheles mosquitoes flitting through the area. Does anybody know? I work at the Mayo Clinic. Does anybody know why the Mayo Clinic is in Minnesota? Is anybody else here from Mayo? I don't think so. It's because in the mid 1800s, the original Dr. Mayo was practicing in Indiana. And he got tired of being sick and febrile every summer. So he told his wife, I'm leaving Indiana. I'm going to find a place that's more pleasant. Three months later, he came back, told his wife he had found a more pleasant place in the summertime. Uh, And so he took his wife and they moved from malaria endemic Indiana to Minnesota. Fascinating to remember that 150 years ago, Mayo celebrating its 150th anniversary this year, 150 years ago malaria was endemic in Indiana. There's been progress in the past centuries and even in recent decades, partly because of people like Bill Gates, partly because of international efforts, and partly because of vector control. The small g good, small n news, is that even since the turn of the millennium in the last 14, almost 15 years, we're now seeing only about half as many malaria deaths each year as we were before. So the death rate related to malaria has dropped in about half already in the past 15 years. And there's about a 20% decrease in the number of people living at risk of getting malaria as malaria has been pushed back or rolled back so it's not covering as many geographical areas. It helps if we understand the vectors, the mosquitoes, because part of the trouble, part of the progress has been because we've been able to chase back those mosquitoes. So the vector, the mosquitoes that transmit malaria are Anopheles mosquitoes. They are chauvinistic because it's only the females that transmit malaria. Male mosquitoes eat sugar water, female mosquitoes eat blood to help them have pregnancies and baby mosquitoes, and it's only in eating blood that the malaria is transmitted. So female mosquitoes transmit malaria, males don't. The malaria-carrying mosquitoes usually bite between dusk and dawn, so during the evening and nighttime hours, and they can bite either indoors or outdoors. So if we're going to think about avoiding malaria, we're going to think about avoiding mosquitoes, and we'll especially be thinking about the mosquitoes that are biting during the evenings and nights. Uh, but we'll realize that dengue and chikungunya and yellow fever can be carried by different mosquitoes that are biting indoors, outdoors, daytime, nighttime. So we don't really want malaria. We don't want mosquitoes to bite us anytime, time, uh, but we can focus for malaria efforts on evening and nighttime with the Anopheles mosquitoes. Mosquitoes do carry other things. There's a woman at this conference, a nursing student, told me that her grandfather, after family service for generations in Africa, the grandfather's now suffering from West Nile virus picked up in California. Mosquitoes are bad anywhere in the world, but we're focusing on the malaria side. One of the cute things about Anopheles mosquitoes is when they land and eat, they put their bottoms up. So if you see a mosquito on your arm, and before you swat it, you're looking at it, and you notice that the body of the mosquito is parallel to your skin, that's not an Anopheles mosquito. The Anopheles mosquitoes prop themselves up so their bottoms are higher than their fronts um, as they're eating. But the other mosquitoes might carry other things so you can still swat it and get rid of it. So that's our trivia about Mosquitoes. What about the victims? We know a little about the parasites. We know something about the mosquito vectors. What about the people? Who are the people that are most at risk of getting malaria? Pregnant women are at significant risk of getting malaria. There are a few reasons for this. Partly, immunity changes during pregnancy. God was very clever in creating our immune system so that women during pregnancy don't recognize the baby as a foreign body. Um, So they have their changes in all this Th1, Th2 immunity level so that they can maintain the pregnancy. But these alterations in the healthy immune status of the woman also make the woman more at risk of getting malaria during pregnancy. And besides that, pregnant women are more attractive to mosquitoes. Mosquitoes prefer pregnant women. A couple studies in the last couple decades have confirmed this. There's twice as much risk of mosquitoes being found in the room where there's a pregnant woman sleeping than in another room. So when mosquitoes have access, they're twice as likely to go hang around the pregnant woman. And even when the pregnant woman is trying to sleep under a bed net, there's about three times as much chance that the mosquitoes are going to find their way through the bed net to get to the inside, Sometimes bed nets are ripped or cracked or not tucked in right. Um, There's about three times as much risk that there'll be a mosquito inside the bed net of a pregnant woman as of a non-pregnant woman. So I suppose there are practical implications about this. Pregnancy is a risk time. Pregnant women should be especially careful about avoiding mosquitoes. They should sleep under bed nets. And the selfish husbands might sleep under their own bed nets, so they're not going to get the mosquitoes attracted to their sleeping spouse next to them. So pregnant women are more attractive to mosquitoes, so we care about mosquitoes, we care about women, um, especially during pregnancy with their malaria risk. But if we look statistically at the illnesses and deaths because of malaria, 90% of it is in children of preschool age. So most of the problem of malaria comes to children. It's a problem for pregnant women, but the big problem of malaria is really for children. And then for travelers, there are about 1,500 cases of malaria each year in the United States, diagnosed in the United States. Almost all of those picked up in other countries from people like us that are going back and forth across international borders. So malaria in tourists is fairly common, and there was probably about 10-15% of us that raised our hands earlier and said that we've had malaria. Most of us probably didn't wait till we were in the U.S. to get it diagnosed, but had it while we were living in other countries. So the victims of malaria are typically pregnant women, children, and travelers. Travelers because they haven't built up enough of their own immunity to be protected. So as a pediatrician, we'll tell a story. Once upon a time, when I was a younger pediatrician, I was working in the then Zaire, Democratic Republic of Congo, and I would go on rounds and see children in the pediatric wards, and I would hang around the maternity area and see newborn babies. And one day as I was going on rounds, the helpful nurse said to me, this newborn had fever during the night, but we gave chloroquine and the baby is fine now. This was 20 years ago. Chloroquine was still appropriate care for malaria at the time. So this was before chloroquine resistance had shown up much in Africa. But the nurse said the newborn had fever, so we treat it for malaria, and the baby's fine. I like education. I saw a teachable moment looming in front of me. And I quoted the literature. Significant enough literature that the guy that said this apparently had Sir for a first name. Anyway, this guy knighted by the queen earlier on. In 1950, had written a line that's been quoted in tropical medicine and pediatric books ever since. In indigenous populations, the incidence of congenital malaria is exceedingly low. So I informed this nurse that I as a pediatrician knew that congenital malaria was exceedingly rare and that bacterial sepsis was a much bigger problem, and that God had spared her nursing career and the patient's life, even though she had treated for malaria when obviously sepsis and bacteremia were bigger risks, and next time we should do better. The effectiveness of my teaching was seen a few days later. I was going on rounds seeing kids again, and a nurse said, this newborn had fever during the night. The malaria smear was positive and we gave chloroquine and the baby is fine now. I saw another teachable moment looming. And I talked about false positive and false negative tests. We even did a study where we had our lab director review malaria smears, and 10% of the malaria smears in our lab were incorrect. I told them that we did not have a divinely inspired holy lab, and that if a child had fever in the night, we should still think about bacteremia and sepsis, and that malaria was exceedingly rare. Fortunately, the nurses didn't chase me away. And they kept me around in my ignorance. And finally I realized that I should remember what kindergartners learn. Stop, look, and listen. I thought I knew something and I thought my education had taught me something that people with first names or titles of sir had known. And I thought I had something to teach other people. And instead I needed to stop thinking I knew so much. I needed to look around and see what was actually happening to babies And I needed to listen to my colleagues who knew a lot more than I did about what was going on. So we looked a little bit deeper into this. And we looked at women coming into the maternity area of our hospital. And we asked the question, what truly are the effects of maternal malaria on newborns? This is an area where lots of mothers were parasitemic and had malaria parasites in their blood. What difference does that make for the babies? So we looked at about 300 consecutive pregnancies um, and got babies as they were fresh born and did blood smears from cord blood and blood smears from heel pricks. There were 297 singleton births out of those 300 pregnancies. And of those 297 babies, 36 of them, 12%, had malaria parasites in their blood. 18 of those babies, 6%, had fever during the first two days of life. And statistically, fever was associated with parasitemia. Having fever gave a threefold risk of being one of those few kids with parasitemia. Interesting. Maybe the nurses were smarter than me. What a concept. That's usually true. Um, And worse than that, sadly, six patients of those 297 did not survive to leave the hospital from their births. They died within those first 48 hours. Five of those six that died had maternal parasitemia, so mothers had malaria parasites. Half of the babies that died had parasites floating around in their own blood. Now, we don't know if those parasites caused the fever, the parasites caused the death, because there are other things that cause asphyxiated babies to die. And an asphyxiated baby might have different blood flow from the placenta to the baby and maybe parasites get through. But statistically, having a fever was associated with having malaria parasites. Dying was associated with having malaria parasites. And so we learned a few things. Since 1993 when that work was published, further studies have been done showing that overall about 7% of newborns in malaria endemic areas have parasitemia. About 7% of babies born in malarial areas are infected with malaria parasites. Most of them clear their parasites and they live happily, well, they live onward. Some of them get sick and have fevers. Some of them die. And in the 20 years since we noticed this, there's been a lot of increased work and increased attention around the world to the problem of malaria in pregnancy people have looked in other places and realized malaria is a big deal in pregnancy burundian refugees were evaluated in tanzania sadly about 5% of the babies died about 2 or 3% of the newborns died nearly a fourth of the babies of these burundian refugees in tanzania were of low birth weight and all of those problems were twice as common if the mother had malaria during pregnancy study done in gambia linked placental malaria infection Malaria parasites sequester, hide, hang out in the placenta. Um, Placental malaria was ranked to preterm delivery and interuterine growth retardation. Placental malaria gave a fourfold risk of being born at low birth weight. Being born less than two and a half kilograms is associated with a much higher mortality in the first year of life. And there was a twofold risk of being stillborn if the mother had malaria in her placenta. Maternal malaria makes a difference for mothers and for babies. If the baby is born, a study from Cameroon showed, if the baby is born to a mother who's got malaria in her placenta, the baby is more likely to have malaria the baby's self at four to six months of age. And if the baby is born to a mother with malaria, the baby's more likely to be anemic at a couple months of age. Maternal malaria is bad for mothers. It's bad for babies. The infant effects of maternal malaria are low birth weight, fetal anemia, neonatal fever, neonatal and potentially later death, malaria, anemia, um, and ongoing troubles. The maternal effect of malaria is largely related to anemia and to all the hardship of having a baby that's not very healthy. So what can we do for pregnant women? We really need to prevent malaria from establishing itself in women. And fortunately... And fortunately, um, insecticide treated bed nets are effective for pregnant women. We know mosquitoes like pregnant women, and insecticide treated bed nets are effective. Women that sleep under bed nets are less likely to have malaria in their placenta. They're more likely to have bigger, healthier babies, less low birth weight. They're less likely to have stillborns. They're less likely to have miscarriages. Using insecticide-treated bed nets during pregnancy improves maternal health, saves babies' lives, and makes babies healthier. It's also possible to give women medicine during pregnancy to prevent malaria. Of those of you that are working in, how many of you are working in malaria endemic areas? Okay, keep your hands out. And in those areas, how many of you keep your hands still up if you give routine anti-malaria medicine during pregnancy to women as part of their prenatal care? Half of you kept your thank you. Half kept hands up, half of them dropped down. So in the last 10 years, there's been an ongoing, increasing evidence that if we give pregnant women malaria medicine as part of their prenatal care, they'll be less likely to have malaria, meaning they'll have less anemia, they'll have bigger, healthier babies. Um, sulfidoxine pyrimethamine, sometimes used with the, fa- the trade name Fancidar, sulfidoxine pyrimethamine helps when given monthly during pregnancy. Giving it monthly during pregnancy, the mothers have less parasites. There are fewer babies born small, and there are fewer babies born early. And it's helpful, especially if there's more HIV in the area. It seems to be particularly protective in women that are HIV positive. And it helps if we don't just do this for women that are sick and come to a clinic or that go to a prenatal check. But there have been studies showing that if we can engage the community What a concept for us clinicians. If we can engage the community, there's gonna be even added effectiveness of seeing the benefit of getting adequate treatment for women. So it's helpful to give preventive treatment to women. Paper that came out in May of this year suggests though that it would even be more helpful if we wouldn't wait till women came in for their prenatal checks. In this country, women are often seeing an obstetrician during the first weeks of finding out they're pregnant. Typical in many places where there's a lot of malaria, women come in when they've been showing for a while, and it's often not until the late second or early third trimester that women show up for prenatal care. We're missing a great opportunity to help by dealing with women when they come to us with their pregnancies, and we could do a lot more to push back the effects of malaria if we would reach women early on in pregnancy. This fits. We care. We don't just want to wait for people to come. This is about outreach. This is about community development. This is about working with people. And we still have some work to do to reach into communities to treat pregnant women early. Actually, I said that was May. This was a paper that just came out uh, last week on the 28th online. So let's get clinical. Any comments about any of that yet? Or shall we get clinical and talk about some patients? Ah, Yes. So what percentage of prematurity is related to malaria? Difficult to say, um, but it seems in sub-Saharan Africa, malaria endemic areas, like a whole lot of prematurity is related. People that have done statistical calculations take their best guess at the percentage and think that there are about 175 children, sorry, 175,000 children dying every year because of their mother's malaria. So I don't have an exact answer of how much of the prematurity is due to malaria. It's probably in that third to half range, but we don't know exactly. But if we could take care of mom's malaria, we'd have less prematurity, less low birth weight, and about 175,000 fewer dead babies before their first birthday. Um, So that's a halfway answer. I don't know exactly, but it's significant enough that taking care of malaria would help a lot. Uh, That is a good question. Do you screen all premature infants for malaria? About 12% of newborns are going to have malaria parasites. It's only a small percentage of those that will get sick from them. So I usually would say if they're sick, then you'd look for malaria. If they're not sick, I don't usually screen. Um, Does anybody screen all preemies for possible malaria? It's been suggested in the literature. Studies from southern Nigeria have said any baby should be screened for malaria. It's not very feasible or practical. Studies in the States say anybody whose mother had malaria, the baby should be tested. Practically speaking, I think we usually wait till kids show sign of an illness and then go for quick treatment. Yes? I don't know if the studies went this far, but regarding the parasites um, hiding out in the placenta, did they have a predominance of a specific um, species? Because I know like by the like, so valley, you know, they go into the liver and they hide out. Ah, good question. So realizing that there are some species of malaria parasite that hide in their liver, is there a species difference of which ones hide in the placenta? No. Um, All malaria parasite species can hide in the placenta. Most of the studies have been done with falciparum and vivax since they're most common. Uh, But it seems that any malaria parasite can hide in the placenta. And there are some... Coding some proteins on the surfaces of some of the actually on the surfaces of the red cells related to the parasites that make the red cells stickier, so they form little clumps, rosettes, where they stick together, and then they're more likely to be stuck in the placenta. So there are some genetic differences in the malaria parasites that relate to how sticky the parasite or the red cells are in the placenta, but it happens with vivax and falciparum, and presumably the others as well. One of the challenges is that from my cultural background, I've worked in Africa and told people, if we take care of malaria, then you'll have a bigger, healthier baby. And my mother say, no, thank you. Because they know bigger babies means more C-sections with more cost, more operations, more operative complications, and more risk of needing C-sections or having uterine rupture with subsequent pregnancies. So we have to deal with the cultural aspects of people that say, I'm not sure I want a bigger baby. But we realize the risk of being low birth weight is much greater than the risk of getting stuck. We're talking about preventing low birth weight. We're not turning healthy four kilogram babies into four and a half kilogram babies. We're talking about getting rid of malaria so the healthy otherwise babies can weigh three kilograms instead of two kilograms. So we want to do that. All right, let's get clinical. A one and a half year old child comes to see you. You're in a malaria endemic area for this situation. The child comes in obtunded, out of it, lethargic, not responding well, and febrile. She is pale and she is jaundiced. What do you do? Hmm? For treat her for malaria okay <coughs> okay so we've got one person willing to speak up treat for malaria one saying do a rapid malaria test I heard some other comments we'll talk about these, these are all good options fluid resuscitate, resuscitate. oh I love these answers <laughs> what's an AccuCheck? check So look at blood... Oh, okay. Uh, We need to not just think... This is a talk about malaria, so every child's going to have malaria. There are other things that make children lethargic, like hypoglycemia with or without malaria. Good. Other thoughts? Hematocrit. Why? Why? Why do you care if there's anemia? Is that going to change what you do? Yes, because you might... You might transfuse the child if there's too much anemia... And if the anemia is not well tolerated with tachycardia, respiratory distress. So we've heard a spectrum of ideas. I don't see anybody shaking their head to say any of these ideas are wrong. But let's talk about them a little bit. If we were going to test for malaria, what, well, what she said was, let's test with a rapid test. Some would do blood smears for malaria, Traditional thick smear is a pile of red cells that are lysed, so we have concentrated parasites, so they're easier to find. The thin smear leaves the blood cells spread apart, so we can better see what the parasites look like in the red cells, so we can differentiate species. The traditional way to diagnose malaria has been with blood smears. That led to me telling our nurse that the lab's not always right, it takes time, and it's a hassle. Now we have rapid antigen tests, which cost a little bit. How much do they cost where you are? Did you say, who said the rapid test for malaria? Dollarish uh, test. That's been true in many other areas. That's a fairly high cost to medical care in some of these low-income areas. Um, so thick and thin smears, labor sometimes costs less than that, and having a microscope, less than that dollar per test. And some of us at the Mayo Clinic do a polymerase chain reaction test, and we get a very good um, sensitive and specific diagnosis of malaria. There's talk of having a little box that would only cost $1,000 or $1,500, and then if for about a dollar a test you could do rapid PCR on blood samples even in rural areas. That talk's been going on for about five years and hasn't gotten practical yet. So if we were going to do a test for malaria instead of the just treat for malaria, we would have options of test, thinking smear versus rapid antigen, depending on our setting. But what about this idea of just treat for malaria? When I worked in Congo, I had the saying that fever equals malaria equals chloroquine. I've already told you that chloroquine's dropped off because their resistance developed. But then I would say fever equals malaria equals malaria treatment. That was my standard standard teaching and I liked that idea for a long time. So is it just fever or what is it we would see with malaria? Typically children that get sick with malaria have a high fever that persists. Old textbooks talk about these cycling every three day or every four day fevers. That's if you wait weeks without any treatment. So normally we would just see the fever of whatever pattern There's often vomiting and diarrhea with malaria. Tachypnea is a poor prognostic sign, suggesting there might be bad anemia or there might be acidosis from trouble. And if the child has hepatosplenomegaly, big liver and or big spleen, uh, we would wonder if there had been chronic repeated bouts of malaria. So typically malaria presents with a persistent high fever, sometimes vomiting and diarrhea, headache, feeling bad, fussiness, sometimes big liver and big spleen, will be concerned if there's tachypnea. And in adults, it's similar if they're not immune, like tourists that aren't used to it. But if somebody's lived with repeated exposure to malaria for five years, then they have much milder disease, maybe no fever, maybe just a little headache. So that's the presentation of what we'd be looking for with malaria. Should we test? If we try to pretend there's a fight here between treat and test, or a fight between myself and the old days, just treat, or what some say now of test. We actually have some data to turn to. Studies were done in Tanzania several years ago, um, six years ago, reported, comparing training and microscope use to improve the clinical diagnosis of thick and thin smears versus training people to better recognize fevers and sickness consistent with malaria versus doing nothing giving microscope training led to a cost savings because there were more accurate diagnoses, but it didn't really change the outcomes for children very much. So whatever test we're using, more training might help. Um, What about rapid diagnostic tests? Rapid diagnostic tests are helpful, but the helpfulness varies depending on how much malaria there is in the area. Um, If there's not much malaria, any false positive becomes a bigger deal. So in high transmission areas, um, there were 61% less over-treatment if we did a rapid test and believed it. We were much less likely to treat for malaria when it wasn't malaria. Uh, But then there was also still sometimes some lower um, sensitivity or some under-treatment. And it cost less when we decided whether we were going to treat based on a test versus just treating based on fever. Studies since I was saying fever equals malaria have suggested that somewhere around 40 to 50 percent of febrile kids in malaria endemic areas actually have malaria. Meaning, if we treat, we're treating twice as many kids as we need to with that added cost of treatment. Study a year and a half ago from Tanzania suggested that there's not nearly as much malaria in that part of Tanzania as there used to be. And it's more like 10 or 15% of the febrile kids had malaria. So the more malaria there is, the more likely to be right if you treat every febrile child with malaria medicine. Uh, but if there's not as much malaria, and even if there is a bunch, it's still worthwhile to think about testing, depending on the cost, depending on your setting, knowing that the results vary based on how much malaria. Others have looked at the accuracy comparing expert microscopy with rapid diagnostic tests. And the rapid diagnostic tests are fairly good depending, again, on how heavy the exposure rates are in the area, how endemic it is. But there's a fairly good positive predictive value of the rapid tests, Um, and this was done a few years ago. Sensitivity of the tests was higher later in the season with older children and those that had heavier parasite densities. Other studies have looked and noticed a difference between research lab studies of rapid tests and what happens in the real world in the field. The tests work better in a lab setting than they do when you're just doing it at home or um, somewhere else, but the tests are still fairly good. In a study in Tanzania looking at 603 febrile children, Basing treatment decisions on a rapid diagnostic test saved money and it did not have any bad outcomes of missing malaria. So I'm painting a picture that with the current rapid diagnostic tests, if you can afford them depending on your setting, if there's a lot of malaria in your area or not, Perhaps doing the rapid diagnostic test is the way to go, and that's what most people would actually suggest these days. The rapid diagnostic tests are pretty good sensitivity-wise and for specificity. Studies in Mali have looked similarly though and led to some questions because some malaria parasites lack one of the proteins that's picked up by some of the rapid diagnostic tests. So it's possible that we'll have false negative results. Most, though, now would suggest that we go ahead and test first before we treat. So, my old idea of fever, malaria, chloroquine, chloroquine fell off, and now I'm switching it to fever, think about malaria and do a test. If the test is positive, then treat. Unless the child is critically ill, then you'll probably start treatment beforehand. The scenario I gave you was a febrile, obtunded, pale, jaundice child. This is a child that's really sick with severe malaria. This is a child where you might do a test, partly to help you make sure you don't have to think too much about other things, but you're probably going to go ahead and start treatment before you wait for those test results anyway. Then we have to remember that just because the child is febrile and has a positive malaria test, maybe there's another diagnosis as well. One of these Tanzanian studies, 1% of the kids with malaria also had bacteremia. Other studies have shown that with severe malaria, there's even a higher incidence of concurrent gram-negative bacteremia. And it's often one of the salmonellas, one of the non-typhoidal salmonellas, that's causing trouble. So if we're going to do the test to help guide treatment, we still have to keep our differential diagnostic thoughts broad enough to realize Malaria might not be the only thing going on. So if there's a child that's really sick, sure, we might treat for malaria, but there could be bacteremia at the same time. And if the child has severe acute malnutrition, weight for height or length, Z-score less than minus three. If the child is significantly malnourished, there's an even greater risk that there's bacteremia with potential for seriously bad outcomes. So we're gonna be not limiting ourselves to malaria. So what I'm saying is we need to be fairly broad in thinking about malaria, but we need to focus in, consider treat or testing, treat if it's positive, but then also be broad enough to think maybe it's not always just malaria, and we might end up treating malaria plus something else. So what are we going to do for this child? This child has altered mental status. This child's sick. We're going to hospitalize this child. And if the child has what I've described here, obtunded and sick, then we'll consider parenteral treatment instead of just oral treatment for malaria. What kind of treatment? For those of you that are in malaria endemic areas, what treatment are you using? What medications are you using to treat severe malaria? Oh, I like pronunciation differences. What we've heard so far is half use quinine and half use quinine. I love it. I always forget which is the British way and which is anyway. And it, with gin. <laughs> That's that tonic water he wants to drink. Okay. Uh, anybody else? Anything other than quinine, quinine? Artemether by uh, itself or with something? Usually, usually by itself. Interesting. Other thoughts? Co-artem. What was that? Coartem, <laughs> which is? Combination of Artemether and Lumifantrine, I think, right? Um, so So we are hearing two answers, quinine or one of the artemesinins, usually in combination with something. So some studies have been done. This is going back a few years, one of the early studies in adults, looking at intramuscular artemether for severely sick adults with malaria, comparing it to quinine with appropriate doses. Outcomes were similar in one study between the two. The most important thing, I think, about the study on the top of this Slide is that there's more than just medical treatment that's necessary when we're treating. The lead author on this research study had the last name of Pray God. Much nicer, I think, than the president of Nigeria's name, Good Luck. Um, (laughs) At least this author doing his study between Artemither and Quinian, at least his name would suggest there's something more divine we should be thinking about besides just the medicine. Another study reported around the same time um, showed that artesinate had a third less death than using quinine for severely sick adults with malaria. Studies since then started showing um, that sometimes the artemesinin derivatives are used alone in which case there's a 20% of recrudescence with the infection coming back, so usually they shouldn't be. Um, The artemisinin derivatives aren't always available, and at that time there weren't as many pediatric studies. Since then, there have been more pediatric studies with rather compelling data, Um, looking at nine African countries, 5,000 kids involved in a multicentered study, looking at children with severe malaria, meaning decreased mental status or severe anemia, um, these children did better or less badly if they got an artemisinin derivative, artesunate, rather than quinine. So mortality difference in this, in this study were between 85 and about 11%. Kids were more likely to die uh, and more likely to have prolonged coma if they got quinine. This is shifting thoughts to say if it's available, maybe we should be shifting or we should be shifting to using artesanate rather than quinine uh, for the severely sick kids with malaria. Studies since then, um, this one included kids and adults looking there was less death if we used artesanate rather than quinine. Um, there were more neurologic sequelae when they left the hospital, but similar neurologic outcomes in survivors later on. And calculations by statisticians suggest that if we use artesanate instead of quinine, we would save about 2.5% more children we're treating. So about 2.5 kids, or 26 out of 1,000, 2.5 out of 100, fewer deaths if we switch to artesanate rather than quinine. Um, So that would be a reasonable thing to be doing, but artesanate's not always available. Um, You're not always in a setting where you can do it. And so you might start with quinine or you might give a loading dose of quinine as the child is being sent to a center where they can get other treatment. Studies would say that 20 milligrams per kilogram is probably a better loading dose than just 15 for quinine. Um, you can give it before they go on and then continuing with a 10 milligrams per kilogram three times a day after that. Somebody wisely mentioned checks looking at blood sugars of kids with severe malaria. Um, Severe malaria can have hypoglycemia associated with it, especially if you use intravenous quinine. But if the intravenous quinine runs in slowly, there's less chance of hypoglycemia. So severe malaria, we're going to think about medications. I like this sign as I was walking down a street in India once. Big red sign for the Krishna drug house. And to the side of the sign is almost an afterthought. It said, doctors available. Sometimes we get the idea that the way to take care of patients is give medicine. Hopefully we really believe that we need some thoughtful, compassionate doctors besides just the medication. One of my best pharmacist friends is sitting here in the front row. We need pharmacists. We need medicines. But there is a point in having a clinician available to think about what we're doing. So child is sick with malaria. Now we're going to think. Somebody mentioned fluid resuscitation a few minutes ago. A one-year-old child hypothetically has a high fever. Respiratory rate is 60. Heart rate is 170. That's fast breathing. That's a very fast heart rate. Systolic blood pressure is 80. That's on the low-ish side. Not quite shock for a one-year-old, but low-ish. And the child has decreased mental status, poor peripheral perfusion. This is a sick one-year-old with a high fever in a malarial area that probably has malaria. We can specify a little more. This is not a severely malnourished child, and this is not a child that had terrible gastroenteritis. This is a child that seems to have straightforward severe malaria. Initial treatment should include A, B, C, or D. Bolus of intravenous saline, bolus of intravenous albumin, or a bigger bolus of intravenous saline, or no intravenous boluses. You got your options? Everybody's about to vote. All right. You know how to do the clickers? Hold your hand up when you want to click. All right. Uh, So how many of you choose A, give an initial bolus of 20 milliliters per kilogram. All right. How many of you choose B, use albumin instead of saline? No takers. How many want to go double the fluid and go with 40? Not many takers, but a few. Um, And how many say no IV boluses? One, two, three, four, five... Is this like Democrat-Republican? Tina's the only one on this side that said no IV bolus. So most of us were trained to think children in shock should get fluids. That's fluid resuscitation. Science, however, might tell us something else. study reported three years ago looked at 3,000 children in multiple centers in East Africa. These were kids with severe malarial, severe fevers, with poor perfusion, without malnutrition, without gastroenteritis. They compared the boluses versus no boluses. Children were one and a half times as likely to die if they got a bolus compared to not getting a bolus. Suggesting in a big study with lots of people in different places in good scientific rigor, suggesting that generous fluid resuscitation boluses of kids that are kind of shocky can kill kids. This made a lot of us pretty uncomfortable when these data came out because it says that our normal good care of given IV fluid bolus maybe is not good for kids. I asked one of my intensive care unit colleagues what he thought about this study and he just waved it off saying, "Ah, we don't have 10% of our kids die anyway so we'll keep doing what we're doing. But in an African setting with African kids, with African malaria and African shockiness, it looks like it might be better not to give the fluid bolus. Now, we could come up with some explanations of this. The obvious explanation is you're not perfusing. That's bad for the body. Give fluids. But maybe not perfusing is a little bit protective so we're not circulating all the lactic acid and all the cytokines and all the other things. Data suggest we should beware of boluses. This child reminds me that details do matter. (laughs) I think it's a Chicago Bulls sweatshirt, but in fact Chicago and Bulls are not spelled correctly. Um, details matter, and we care not just about what medicine, what dose, what fluids, but we care about details. Supportive care always matters when treating malaria. Some kids with bad malaria have seizures. Some kids with regular malaria have fever-associated seizures. We might use antelopeleptic medicine. Hydration is good. I said adequate hydration. i still believing in being careful and maybe not bolusing. Considering sugar, like was mentioned, comfort measures, Love, compassion, paracetamol, um, acetaminophen kinds of things. And details matter. Every time we see a child with malaria, we should be doubling our preventive efforts. What about less sick kids? Uncomplicated malaria. Less sick kids with malaria. Artemisinin combination therapy is still reasonable. We can use artesunate combined with some other longer-acting medicine at the same time. Or we can use the combination of artemether, uh, and lumifantrine. There are some other combinations available with weight appropriate doses um, for children. So uncomplicated uh, malaria in Africa, usually artemisinin combination treatment would be the first line of therapy now, though there are other possibilities. As we get closer to the end, what about us? What about a family from a non-endemic area planning to go to Africa? What should we do for the adults and the kids? In fact, we're giving them an ukaguziwa afia, a health control before they go on their trip to see what we might do to prevent malaria for them. We do need to be concerned about the mosquito vectors, but we don't need so much fear that we think the mosquitoes are a bigger deal than the airplanes, perhaps. Here is a picture of my daughter, now 28 years old. She was a bit younger at the time, sleeping under a mosquito net to remind us that mosquito nets are vitally important and very helpful to protect against malaria. Any of you see any bad pediatrician father ideas in that picture? Oh, I'm hearing a lot of them, but I didn't hear what what you're saying. All right, I didn't put the net on very well. what else? Stuffed animals making her re-breathe and risk dying of crib death and... She's lying on her tummy. She's supposed to lie on her back. So this was done before the whole... My daughter, for she's a delightful 28-year-old now, doing wonderful things, um, very godly, and she survived her bad pediatrician father. <laughs> Point is, use mosquito nets, use them better, but think about all the other stuff that we didn't know 28 years ago to help kids. Mosquito repellents can be useful. Different repellents have different efficacy. DEET, diethylmedetolumide, is useful. The higher the concentration, the longer the protective duration. Citronella makes skin soft and smells good and lasts for about as long as it takes to rub it on. Uh, <laughs> DEET is effective. Picaridin, now known as Icaridin without the P, is also effective for about the same duration as the same concentration of DEET would be. So to prevent malaria in travelers, DEET is safe, even for kids, as long as you don't rub it in their eyes to hurt them and as long as they don't lick it off their arms and intoxicate themselves with it. Icaridin works similarly. Permethrin is fine on clothes and on bed nets as an insecticide. We should think about the environment. Mosquitoes hang around water. Having stagnant water around our living places increases the risk of mosquitoes and malaria. There are three main mosquito, or sorry, three main chemoprophylactic malaria prevention medicines. Mefloquine can work well. 18% of people get tummy aches, sleep problems, or don't like it very much. But it's effective. It's just once a week, and we don't think it's as expensive as we used to do before we had Malarone, Atovaquone, and Proguanil to use as an option, which is even more expensive. About 30% of mefloquine purchased in Africa is not mefloquine. We have to be careful about counterfeit drugs. 30% of most any Africa-purchased drug is not what you think it is, despite wonderful labels. But mefloquine is a weekly option, can be reasonable. The tovoquine is used daily, almost no side effects. Doxycycline can work well. Kids less than eight might stain their teeth with it. Women don't like vaginal yeast problems. And 10% of people get bothersome photosensitivity sun reactions. But we have three options. It's better to prevent malaria than to have to treat it if we're going to be living in a malaria endemic area. And then we can have a healthy family ready to be the Wana Osafiri, heading out of the departure lounge into a good place of service, being happy on the airplanes and thriving and doing well. So are there any take-home lessons for us? Perhaps we shouldn't have take-home lessons... But take away lessons, because I don't think we all just want to take all our malaria thoughts and just go home, unless our home is already in a malaria endemic area. But I would encourage us to have take away lessons to leave this conference and head out into the world so we can be useful to people potentially in malaria endemic areas. So we're reminded malaria is still bad. The situation's much better than it used to be, but there's still a lot of malaria. We should be broad to consider other things besides malaria when seeing febrile patients. We should be narrow to focus in, is it really malaria or not? And we should be ready to take care of even sick kids. Artemisinin combination therapy is usually the way to go, um, depending on feasibility in your setting. We should be careful about boluses and maybe not use them. And we should always remember prevention. And that leaves us about seven minutes for comments and questions. The what can, where do we stand with the vaccine? Gags Consortium? Tell me about the Gags. Oh, Gates. I'm sorry. Uh, so there's a lot of great progress with malaria vaccines. Not quite to prime time yet. Clinical studies show that about 30% of children that get malaria vaccines are protected for a year or two. That's huge. That's wonderful. That would save 100 or 200,000 lives but it's still only 30% effective. So the Gates Foundation and other groups are indeed supporting malaria vaccine development. There are a couple of different angles on which way vaccines are going. I expect we'll get one someday that's going to be effective enough to use, but we're still in that 30 to 40% effectiveness range, which gives us a lot of hope, but it doesn't want to make people start ramping up to give it to every child in multiple doses if two, so two-thirds will still be not protected good thought yeah there are a lot of clever people question is what about vaccinating mosquitoes there are a lot of clever people working with mosquitoes uh, there's work being done some of it's to genetically alter mosquitoes release them when they won't be susceptible to malaria but make them healthier so they'll overrun and take over the mosquito population from the others those efforts sound really cool and haven't worked yet. Um, and what about vaccinating mosquitoes potentially? The trouble with malaria is that it has different forms in different places and different beings. So you get it for about a half an hour in your blood after you're bitten. It'd be nice if we could target it there so it never goes to the liver to develop. But you've got to have a pretty brisk immunity to be able to wipe it out completely in a half an hour. Or you've got it hiding inside cells in the liver for about a week and a half. You could target it there, but targeting it when it's inside liver cells doesn't work as well. Or you could target it as it's released from the liver cells as the merozoite stage. That's good. Or you could target the reproducing ones, the gametocytes, that they're then going to be taken up by the mosquitoes or you could target it in the mosquito as it's going through the mosquito, but most of the time in the mosquito it's in the salivary system and not in the blood system. So the problem with malaria vaccines is multiple protein targets, incompletely understood immune mechanisms to fight it, and all these different stages of parasites that have different proteins and different ways to go. So there's been some work done, but it's less far along in vaccinating uh, mosquitoes than it is in vaccinating humans but there's some work going there. Yeah? Are you seeing any resistance patterns with either mefloquine or malarone? Um, the resistance patterns. Mefloquine resistance has been reported along the Thai-Cambodian border for eight or so years. Uh, mefloquine resistance is intermittently found in scattered places in Africa, but not fully established. Um, atovaquone proguano malarone resistance has been reported in a few case reports, but doesn't seem to have really picked up in any geographical area. The few case reports I've seen, all I'm remembering are from Africa, but not from multiple cases in the same site. Um, Interestingly, sulfidoxine pyrimethamine shows less resistance now than it did when it was used more. Um, Chloroquine has less resistance than it used to, but there's still a lot. We're not about to start using chloroquine. But sometimes taking the medicine out of the environment Mosquito well malaria parasites might be altered to become more resistant. Anyway, mefloquine resistance not spreading much, not much of a problem except Thai-Cambodian border areas, um, and and only in the forested places where there aren't too many people around there. Atovaquone-proguanil um, resistance not very much, but a risk. Other questions, comments? Yeah. So what about ongoing exposure should you stay on prophylaxis for a long time? You were looking at me when you asked the question, so I'll just answer. Yes, take it for a long time. Okay, I should give more of an explanation. Um, So there's been concern in the past with chloroquine in the old days when it was used, still used for Central America and the Caribbean. Um, Chloroquine when used in high doses for rheumatoid arthritis can lead to retinal problems, vision problems when used for more than five years. Those are different doses. How does that relate? People that take chloroquine for malaria prevention don't seem to have retinal problems even though people have suggested looking. Chloroquine sounds like mefloquine. So some people have said, well, we better not take mefloquine for more than five years either. I know of no data to say that prolonged use gives any toxicity. If you were going to stay in a malaria endemic area and keep getting some exposure for five years, never take a furlough or home assignment, then you would build up some immunity and might not need it for longer. Most of us are probably going to travel the world and spend a few months outside the malaria endemic area. Our natural immunity will drop. Um, so I would. So I've seen it's partly emotional, partly science. I've had friends of kids die of malaria. Um, sometimes it was with prophylaxis, sometimes it was without. Um, the risk of long-term prophylaxis isn't much. Like nothing medical. It's just the cost factor. The risk of malaria can be pretty bad. So my bias is yes, five, ten, twenty years, it's okay. Say on your malaria prophylaxis, but it might change. There's not nearly as much malaria as there used to be. Um, in five years, there not, might not be malaria in the area where you are, um, so things might get better. What's your opinion on herbal prophylaxis? People have done studies on herbal preventive medicines in different ways. One of them, not what you're asking. Garlic is thought to repel mosquitoes. Studies say it doesn't. It just repels your friends, uh, but not the mosquitoes. Uh, what about other herbal prophylaxis for malaria? I don't know of any that's very good. On the other hand, a generation ago, artemecinine was herbal. It's a plant product from China. um, So there could, when you're sitting next to a pharmacist that does research about these things, uh, it could be that some herbal preparations are going to turn out to have good anti-malarial effectiveness. But I don't know of any herbal preparation that shows any current evidence to support that it's adequate for malaria prevention. Um, cotrimoxazole, trimethoprim sulfamethyloxazole, sometimes called bactromiceptra, and azithromycin, two common antibiotics, they actually have some malaria prophylactic value. Not enough to start using them, but there are other medicines that do. Herbal things, those that have been studied, don't show it yet. We have time for one more question, and then I'll be here for more if you want. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, very good thought. Yeah, we're thinking herbal in terms of things to take to make us healthy, growing plants in your house and watering the plants leaves little spaces between the stem and a leaf. All it takes is a couple drops of water to make them a mosquito habitat. Um, so if we want to cut down the risk of mosquitoes, we won't have any standing water, even when it's only a drop or two at the edge of a plant in our house. Um, Some people have taken that a step farther, and they put big tubs with floating lilies and fish in the water tub um, so the fish will eat the larvae of the mosquitoes. I would say let's just get rid of the standing water and the plants that have moisture on them that lasts for more than two days. Thank you all very much. I'm here if you have more questions. Enjoy the rest of the morning.